to brighten your Monday morning, I am so thrilled to be able to bring to you the former UConn head baseball coach and longtime affiliate of the UConn football program, including a longtime assistant coach at UConn. It is Andrew Baylock joining me today, my longtime UConn friend. Andy, good to get you back in the studio today. Good morning to you. It's 9-11. Let's start things off with a lot of people are talking about today. Where were you on 9-11? I was out uh, doing some work out on the field. It was a beautiful day. That would be the baseball field. Yes, the baseball field. Uh, I came into the field house, and an administrator said, come into my office. Look what's on TV. And that was the first exposure. And then, of course, uh, you know, we were glued to the TV from then on. But, yes. Did you have interaction with your players at that point in time? Maybe maybe it was discussed later on the significance of this massive event? Well, we did eventually, but obviously it was it was kind of early that day, too. And we had, didn't have anything going on yet. But, yes, that was a part of our discussion. Yes. After all those years as coaching, you are now the director of UConn Football Alumni and Community Affairs. What does that mean? Well, the community affairs now is being handled pretty much by Kevin Poles, one of our former players, doing a pretty good job. But with the uh, UConn football alumni, uh, I'm in constant touch with approximately 1,300 football alumni. And I do it via uh, newsletters several a year. Uh, During the pandemic, there were about 800 phone calls, uh, visitations, over 700 of those alums have been back for individual tours of our facilities. And, uh, for example, up and coming over here this Saturday, coming Saturday, we're honoring the 1973 team. They were Yankee Conference champions. 50th anniversary. 50th, 50th anniversary. And uh, about 30 of them are going to be here present, and we'll have a little get-together before at our alumni tent, and then hopefully we'll get them on the field and during the first time out to be shown to the crowd, and they will get together up in the club room. Now, that was the team of Larry Navio, his first of four years here at UConn. They went 8-2-1. and one. They were unbeaten in the Yankee Conference. Drop a couple of names on us. Who are some of the key players on that team? Uh, Captain Rich Foy, All-American, center. Uh, Don Thompson, outstanding linebacker. Uh... Let's see, Lou Man Carey, quarterback, Bernie Palmer, quarterback. Lou Man Carey, by the way, will be back with us, too. Uh, <laughs> I didn't bring my list with me over here, but, uh, oh, let me see now. Uh, Bill Maver, Ron Mansfield, Dr. Bob Bundy. Uh, by the way, tell the people, a lot of people know Dr. Bob. You know, he was a doctor up at Wyndham Hospital. At least he was. He just retired a year or two ago. But it always intrigued me, and he and I joked about this. He, he's a string bean. He's a tall, skinny guy. And as I heard the story, he was an offensive lineman. He wouldn't play now. Well, now, but when he he was a pretty good athlete. We had him in baseball also. You know, he's a pretty good baseball player too. And Dr. Bob came in, and, and we, we pulled the guards an awful lot, and he was an offensive guard, and he was a very good one for us too. And uh, uh, But a good football player, good mind, a good athlete. And, uh, you and know, a good could, doctor. And a good doctor. <laughs> and his son also uh, was one of my pitchers at one time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it goes in the family. So when you reach out to these old players who played, most of them played one A football, even though the 1A thing has been going on for 20 or so years now, are they thrilled that the school is actually contacting them to get back in the fold as far as the program 
now that it's gone, quote unquote, big time, I got to think they're really excited about this. Well, they, when I came back to football in 2003, there wasn't a lot of contact with the former players. And I took it upon myself. I said, nope, that's not going to be because there wasn't baseball. And then when Jimmy Penders took over, I knew he would carry on. I had no problem with that. I said, but i got to get something going with football. So I went through all the records and got all the names. I went through all the files I could. Then went over to Alumni Association and so forth, dug up addresses, and worked up my list. And I'm still missing a few people. And each time I do a newsletter, I'll list by the decade who's still missing. And then someone eventually will call in and let me know of an address and so forth. But... Uh, uh, so I, I started that and built that list up and stayed in constant contact. And they absolutely appreciate it. And it was shown, too, when a week ago, was it a week ago? Yeah, a week ago right now, about 250 of them came back for the North Carolina State game. And some of those also, I think, additionally came to honor Coach Baylock, who was a big deal back in that NC State game. What was that day, that night like for you? It was unbelievable. Uh, Ken Demers from the 1960s was the person that put it all together. <laughs> and with the help of Kevin Freeman, who's our National Sea Club director. Oh, you mean the 1999 and national champion Kevin Freeman? That's the Kevin <laughs> Freeman. And uh, for me, the recognition, it was nice. But what I loved the most was getting together for a couple hours before the game out in a special place in the parking lot where they had flags that said Andy's Place and just meeting eyeball to eyeball with so many of those former players and getting actual big bear hugs. and It, it was just most one of the most enjoyable times that I've had in my, my career up there, just getting together with those people. Recognition well-deserved. So you've got the 1973 team coming for this Saturday's game against FIU, and then later on down the road, I think it's the week after, you've got something else up your sleeve. What's that? Well, for homecoming, 35 UConn football players had All-American recognition. Two are deceased. There are 30 th 33, and I'm my, my goal is to get at least 20 of them to come back for homecoming. And we'll have a gathering before the game, and hopefully, you know, obviously, we'll get them out on the field for some recognition and, and show them to the fans. That's tremendous. I, I love the way that you, you keep touch with the old guys, because I'm big into that. I'm big into the history of the program, both basketball, baseball, women's basketball, other programs as well, and bringing these guys back. When, when I'm up there in the booth doing the game on the radio and they have these things, I stop, I watch, I try to listen. Sometimes you can't hear with the PA echoing off the stadium there, but I love all the uh, stuff that you've been able to bring back. I think that's, that's really good as uh, people get a chance to connect with what's going on now with UConn football. What's your take on Coach Jim Mora? Did a remarkable job last year going from one win to six. Been a rocky start this year, but season's still young. But he's a classy guy, isn't he? I absolutely love the presence of Coach Jim Mora. He's such a positive person. Outstanding field coach. Oh, I attend, I go out to watch practices quite frequently. And the what he's gotten out of the players, too, is that I use an expression, pickle puss, you know, with a sour look on a face. I don't see any pickle pusses out there. I see kids with a good look on their face. And, I, you know, you go to a practice session, they go all out. They give you everything they got. 
They, they have the good look on their face. I enjoy watching them, and I enjoy watching how he handles them, too. If someone messes up, of course, they'll hear about it. But they also get an arm around them, too, where Coach shows, I just didn't like what you do, but I sure like you. Great story. And for the pregame show of the season opener against North Carolina State, Bob Joyce asked me, because I, I go back 50 years with you, and he asked me for a story about you. And I got plenty, but the one story I told on the air was one I don't think most people are aware of, that I remember back in the days you would go to UConn football games, and you told me that when you go, you just go as a fan. You weren't going as part of the team, so to speak. But you like to sit in the end zone with binoculars, and you would get the binocs, and you would focus those binocs on the quarterback's eyes, our quarterback, their quarterback, because it sort of ties in what you just said, that you can read a guy's demeanor by looking at his eyes. Want to take that from there? <laughs> Sometimes it will telltale, too, and it give you the direction he's going in, too. If he concentrates a little more in one area, well, someone's going to be throwing a pass in that area, or... Or it might be a handoff or whatever. But also, when you in the end zone, you get the spacing of all the linemen. You get to see all the blocking schemes. And I did an awful lot of scouting, too, when I was coaching way back, you know, for that 15, 16-year period of time. And in those days, we actually did scouting. Now they, it's just film exchange. They don't even exchange films. They everything on the video and so forth. But, uh, you know, I, I remember after having a freshman game on a Friday night, and driving after that all the way up to Orono, Maine, to scout Maine the next day and falling asleep behind the wheel on the Maine turnpike. And, but anyway, uh, you come back with a full report. You know, you get a feel of what the, the, the team was like uh, physically. You get up up-close look. And, you know, it was quite an endeavor, but I did that for several years. But, but when you're in the end zone, you get a good perspective on everything. Spacing, blocking schemes, defensive schemes, who, the coverages that are made and so forth. And, and I really got into it, and I really enjoyed it. Let's change gears to baseball. Andy Baylock is 85 years old. Andy, you throw batting practice for a number of teams. We'll hear about that. But how many batting practice pitches have you thrown in your life? Well, Collegiate Baseball is a national publication. It goes out to all the college coaches. It's a newspaper. It comes out of uh, Arizona. And Lou Pavlovich, the uh, editor over there, I think it was about five years ago, he estimated between myself at UConn, Team USA, the Cape Cod League, and wherever else I'd been, he estimated at that time it was 2.4 million pitches. That was five years ago. But I'm still pretty good for about 300 rep, 250 to 300 repetitions each time out now. And in this past summer, I did it over in Norwich at Dodge Stadium, you know, two, three times a week with the uh, Norwich Unicorns and the Futures League. And, and by the way, talk about them. They won the championship. It, we won everything. And what a young coaching staff. Kevin Murphy, just the recent graduate. Uh, Noah Plantamuro. Uh, and... Uh, Luke Broadhurst, young coaches, what a job they did. We won the whole season, and we won the uh, playoffs, yes. Uh, and we led the league in, uh, in offense and in pitching. And just last week, you called me after you had been throwing batting practice for Eastern Connecticut State University. You've been doing that for a while as well. It's my eighth, eighth season over there. I only live about 10 minutes from there, so I volunteer. and Just a volunteer coach over there and. uh throw batting practice over there, and I work with the catchers on a voluntary basis, and I really enjoy it. 
Wasn't there some rule? You told me this a long time ago that it's okay to do that at Division Three, Eastern Connecticut, but you can't offer the same services to Coach Penders at UConn. They're Division One. Division One. I, if I did, I'd be considered an extra coach, and it would be a violation. Division Three doesn't have a limitation on coaches, and uh, so if they don't have the limitation, that's something I love to do. I volunteered my services. All right, so tell me about your batting practice pitching style. First off, how hard are you throwing? What do you if you got the jugs gone out? How fast is Andy throwing? Uh, it's not fast; it's accurate. You know, you <laughs> you move the pitching screen up a little bit closer so that you get more repetitions in because you're limited on time, and you get more accuracy that way. But uh, you know, you watch people throw batting practice; they run up and flip a ball up there. I actually come to the set position. And if you're getting six or eight repetitions, you're going to see what the pitcher is actually throwing you from that set position. And I take time in between. And it gives you a quality swing or a quality look. And I could mix them up. A batter may want middle in, middle away. Might have a mix in there, like a cutter, a slider, maybe a changeup. And I do, I do all of that. And, and I enjoy doing it. And people say, how's your arm? My arm is fine. My feet hurt, though. <laughs> yeah, your toe is the issue, and that's the, that's the foot you land on when you pitch, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's, is that temporary? You're going to get that no, fixed? No, no. It's, at 85, it's arthritic. <laughs> well, I am proud to say that I've hit your batting practice pitches. I remember one of them, it rolled to the wall. It didn't make it to the warning track in the air, but it hit the outfield and rolled to the wall. And you know what? I'm going to hang my hat on that. What did you think when I was at the plate there? Do you have any <laughs> any tips on my swing there, Andy? I said, Wayne, oh, go to softball. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and I hit those balls over the wall. We didn't have walls at Rec Park, but you know what I'm talking about. You've been in sports like forever. Where did it all start for you? It all started at New Britain High School. And uh, <laughs> my football coach there was Mr. John Toner. And my baseball coach... Uh, who passed away recently, had a pitcher named Steve Dalkowski, left-hander, who went on in the Baltimore Oriole chain, and he was deemed the fastest pitcher ever. And I happened to be his catcher for a year. And in those days, you didn't know, uh, you know, again, he wasn't at the pro level yet, but he knew he threw the ball pretty hard because this hand was very, very sore. And the old mitt that we used uh, wasn't that appropriate like they are today. But he went on, and they, they've written books about him. I've been interviewed by ESPN about him, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, newspaper people and so forth. But he went on to set all kinds of records for strikeouts and walks in his climb up to the major leagues. And so it started there. Did they have a jugs gun on him? How th- what do you figure he was throwing? They didn't have a jugs gun in those days. They, they, had, a, they had something in Aberdeen where they brought him in after he th- They didn't have pitch counts in those days. He threw a game probably 250 pitches the night before. And, and then he tried try to throw it through a target area. And finally, when he did, it was 100 plus from what I heard. But uh, it, was, it was quite the thing over there. But uh, that's where it started, and then I stayed locally and went to Central Connecticut where I played football and baseball. What position in football? In football, I was a tight end, defensive end, offensive center. Uh, I played all over. I was a two-way player. and I. I what happened it. to those, by the way? You don't uh, see those anymore. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Primetime over there had one. Played both ways for Colorado. 
but uh, Deion Sanders. No, you don't see those. Yeah. And, but and, I, and in baseball, you were a catcher. Yes, I was okay. a catcher in baseball, and then uh, at the end of my senior year, my athletic director, Dr. Bill Moore, said, "What are you going to do next year?" I said, "I'm not quite sure." He said, "Well, I have connections at Michigan." And I had pretty good grades, so I went out there as a grad assistant coach at the University of Michigan. And Don Lund was our head coach, Moby Benedict, the assistant, both former Tigers, and myself. And it just happened to be there at the right time because we won a national championship. Bill Freehand was our catcher then, who pretty well known. And then from there, uh, continuing on in baseball, of course, at UConn. Then I spent four summers coaching Falmouth in the Cape League. Uh, I spent about five summers up in New Brunswick, Chatham, New Brunswick, developing baseball up that area. I had an opportunity and a privilege to coach Team USA, which is your top collegiate players in America over there, three, three different occasions over there. And that basically it's the Olympic team in a non-Olympic year. So I had the privilege of coaching Joe Girardi, Jack McDowell, you know. I was a pitching coach for three years there. And then I had a, uh, a stint with the Dutch national team uh, as a pitching coach when they came to Arizona for a two-week training period. Do you have spikes on your wooden shoes? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and then Dwayne Banks from Iowa and myself were sent down into the islands to pick up all the best players down into Curacao and all the islands and send them to Europe and so forth. And what an experience that was. Uh, you call for a 4 o'clock practice. They may get there at 4 or may not. But they play hard. But when they finish, they go into the clubhouse, they play uh, dominoes, uh, they smoke cigarettes, and they have Heinekens. And I said, uh, what are you guys doing? They said, don't your guys doing that? I said, maybe, but when I don't, when I don't know about it. And then it was at Dodge Stadium. Uh, I was a batting practice pitcher with the AA Yankees when they were there. Norwich Navigators. Norwich Navigators. And then the San Francisco Giants, the Defenders, and then for five years, and then ten years with the Detroit Tigers. Connecticut so Tigers. B, yeah. I was a BP guy there, and, it, and I had a lot of fun doing that because I got to meet a lot of good people. And then at Eastern Connecticut, then the Unicorns over at the, down at uh, Dodd Stadium, and uh, I'm also the vice president of Hartford Twilight League, assisting Bill Hollowaty, our president. So what do you do in your spare time, mow lawns? Uh, seven. And I try to get one in each day for about an hour. And we're not talking some sissy riding mower, right? No. Are you talking push, the old push mower? 22-inch mower with a motor on it. But, you know, if you just take a walk, I don't know what you accomplish, but I've rarely accomplished something. So if I'll take a walk and push a lawnmower, I'll get something done. Oh, so you tell me I should bring a lawnmower when I go on the rail trails? <laughs> no, that's not. So, I mean, you know, sometimes it's the kids who are making extra bucks mowing lawns. 85-year-old <laughs> Annie Bailey, are you looking for more gigs? You want people no. to call you to mow their lawns? No, I've got enough. <laughs> no, okay. Well, and, and along the same line there in that story, tell a story about your connection with the guy whose name is on the basketball gymnasium at Eastern Connecticut State University, Francis E. Geisler. Oh, yes. At When I was at Central Connecticut, we uh, well we were they, we were Willimantic State College and we were uh, New Britain State College. We competed, and he was baseball coach too. And so you know we got to know each other. But after graduation and so forth, and many many times we ran into each other, we became very good friends. He was a class gentleman, a real class gentleman. He did things the right way, and I, I loved his philosophy of the way he handled people, the way he handled situations. Which leads into my philosophy. What would that be, Andy? Well, I, I, I've never changed. I've always felt this way. I had a great background, too. When I was uh, at East Catholic High School for two years, 
uh, I was head football coach and taught courses over there and so forth. And I had a great, great mentor there, Reverend Charles E. Schwar, our uh, principal. But my philosophy has always been this. If I'm going to run a program, it's going to be built around this, that hopefully that you will become more dependable, accountable, responsible, caring, loyal, self-disciplined, and respectful as a person. That, by the way, for the listeners, he was not reading that. That was top of his head. You know what that reminded me of? I'm an Eagle Scout. That was like the, the Scout law, trustworthy, brave, and all that stuff. That, 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 so that's something you've apparently recited to all your people. Uh, well, and, and practice it, and practice mm-hmm. it. And, you know, and then, it, and I always felt this way, too, and if I have enough talent there, and if I don't mess it up, we'll win some games, too. But the most important thing is that, uh, that all those players develop a, another level of all those areas there. And to, and to me, that's most important. That's that's excellent. And speaking of another Eastern Connecticut connection, Bill Holowaty, the uh, four-time national champion coach at Eastern Connecticut State University. You guys were teammates? We were teammates in the Willimantic Twilight League. Uh, well, I started, I played in this league when I was at East Catholic High School. I played for a team that came out of Manchester, and we com- commuted up here. But then again, I played for the Rock Garden Rockers under John Pringle. And uh, we had Jim Parmalee was our number one pitcher. Lefty Mila was our first baseman. Andy Managia was the principal of a school over in uh, Vernon, third baseman. Glenn Cross, you know, a lot of local guys. And, uh, and Coach Holowaty was a shortstop. And we were teammates. And, boy, I tell you, that, you know, just being on a team with him, you'll find out how competitive he was, too. And he was that way as a basketball player. And I thought, too, he was such a good athlete, he probably could have played tight end for us. But he was there and, you know, his basketball recruited him, and he was on a basketball scholarship. But I, but we tried to entice him to come out for football, but we didn't quite make it. But but uh, it, was, it was fun being a, a teammate with him because I knew from day one right there how competitive that man was. And, of course, Bill played with the, the great – West Palisuknia, and he was there when Toby Kimball was there. But I don't think enough people understand that if he hadn't blown out his ankle, I think he was a freshman at the time, he might have been right on that same upper echelon list with some of the greatest players ever. He was a hell of a player, but he never was able to show that because of the injury. Yes. And in high school, he played multiple sports, too. And uh, absolutely. Very competitive, very talented and uh, just, to, you know, it was fun being a teammate with him. And since we're talking some UConn connection and UConn names here, I almost put you in this category now, which is not a fair fight, but you have become kind of the ambassador for UConn sports now. Everybody knows you. You've been around a long time. Well, the guy that had that position until a couple of years ago was the late, great Donald E. D. Rowe. And you were really close to him in the final years of his life, not to mention earlier as well. But just to tell us what D. Rowe means to UConn. D. was amazing. When he started our athletic fundraising program, I got pretty close to him then, too, because I had to do a lot of that with the baseball. So I learned the fundamentals of it and so forth. And I got pretty good at it after a while. I was raising pretty good for the baseball program, and uh, but I learned it from him. But, yes, in those bunch of years or towards the end each day we would meet for coffee and uh, we'd go I'd pick him up at his office we'd go across the street and we'd sit there have coffee and we'd gab and uh, he was he got to be known as the Pope and I was the Monsignor and people would come over to us and say 
D, it's so good to see you. And his comment was, I like being seen and not viewed. And then the other comment would be, what do you guys discuss? What do you talk about? And he said, major issues, but no one listens. <laughs> but he, he was just awesome. What was the effect of the pandemic on, on D? And I, I say that because, as you said, you guys would have lunch almost, seemed like every day. And you know, it was almost like you had a mission to keep his mind sharp as it began to fade. He had, obviously, the, the dementia issues as well. And all of a sudden, come the pandemic, you weren't able to do that anymore. Well, we did have gatherings at his house, but we'd sit out in the driveway apart, you know, and we had, uh, he had, like, uh, Tony Casarella, Mike Zito. He had a few people who he was pretty close to, too. We'd gather over there, and he'd sit in the middle, and we'd spread out. At least we could eyeball each other and chat. Well, let me give my version of that story. Is that Doug Melody, who is a Husky basketball guard, 70, 71, 72, I think it was, he recognized the, the love that he's got and the players have for D. He said, look, we're not able to meet him in person anymore. So we set up a whole series of Zoom calls. And he was doing it like every other night, it seemed. And there'd be a group of like five people. You don't want too many on there because that becomes confusing. I was on it a couple of times. And I tell some of my stories. And uh, Joe was on it. And he had a lot of different people over the course of time. And D loved it. We loved it. His former players loved it. And then when things began to loosen up a little bit and warm up the following summer, we'd have driveway things, which is what you were talking about. And we, we, we would bring along folding chairs, and people would sit like at about a 12-, 15-foot circle and do the same thing. We had one day that it rained. Well, you bring it inside the garage, and, you know, you got your distancing and so forth. And I'll tell you what, it, it, that was special. And, and everybody got a chance to really do their part to keep in D-Row in the minds pretty sharp. Bueno, he was very special. I first met him on a recruiting trip. Uh, my recruiting area was Central and Western Mass, and I went to Worcester Academy. I didn't know D. Rowe, but I went into the office, and he came out, introduced himself. He was the athletic director also. And I was you know, recruiting for football, a combination maybe baseball too. And he set out for coffee, and we sat down, and, and I said, I'd like to meet a couple of your top players. He brought him in. One of the greatest ones that ever played at UConn, Brian Herosian, Bill Sampko, Billy Cook, some pretty good ones over there. And uh, that was the beginning of our relationship. And uh, as you know, Brian Herosian turned out to be a real good one. You know, uh, uh, our number one pitcher in 1972 in the College World Series, you know, he played in the NFL, and CFL, and so forth. And and then uh, and Billy Sampko went on to be the head coach in college at couple of schools and that including Tufts uh, so that was our, our first engagement no that's great stuff going back to those days and, and uh, speaking of D let's say a couple of words too about how he quickly turned the program around they did a couple of rough years under Burke Carlson uh, who I think was a great player at UConn but not the best coach and then D comes in in 1970 and they had that incredible year. They lost four of their top eight players. They beat Rhode Island in one of the most amazing games I've ever seen at UConn, the slowdown game. Uh, D found a way to win that game. And you know what? Despite the – there were row-must-go signs back at one point, but he, they got to the NCAA, the uh, Sweet 16, back in 76. D did a heck of a job with that program when he was the head man. Yes, he did. And uh, I remember one time uh, – 
I used to I'd open the doors as, at halftime when they'd go underneath the scoreboard in the old field house and go into the locker room, and then uh, I'd open the door, you know, just convenience over there, and, and the team came out, but Dave wasn't there. I, I th what I heard though that he wanted to pressure, he wanted to preach defense, and he threw a ball on the floor and dove on it and hurt his shoulder. <laughs> so he was a little delayed coming out of the locker room. <laughs> I had not heard that story before. Of course, it, it helped his success rate when he had a guy named Tony Hansen playing for him, and that was one of the biggest. That was the biggest recruit that D ever had. So Andy, go, go, let me take you back to your days uh, coaching baseball at the University of Connecticut. You need a lot of people to make the program successful. Did did, did you have any good bat boys back in the day at UConn? <laughs> bat boys or bad boys? <laughs> well, well, let's do both. Well, I had one uh, one of your compatriots over here, Mr. John Tuit. <laughs> and in fact, we had, we somehow someone took a photo. Uh, Billy Flood, our catcher, was at the plate. Dropped the bat, and there was little John Tuit lifting it. <laughs> uh, what, uh, Andy, what makes a good bat boy? Are there qualifications that are necessary for this job? Are there things that make one better than the other? No, no. Well, it depends <laughs> on what level you're at. But, uh, I, I, you know, like what Jimmy Penders does right now, it's usually the, the, the little sons of the assistant coaches or whatever, but just to get them involved. And uh, he does a good job with that, by the way. And speaking of the Penders, by the way, I threw batting practice to Jimmy's dad in the 60s. You know, when, when we went to the College World Series in 1965, I threw batting practice to Jimmy Penders, by the way, who was probably the, one of the best captains I ever had. And now I'm throwing batting practice to his son, Hank Penders, over at Eastern Connecticut. That's three generations. I've referred a couple of times this morning, Andy, to you being the head baseball coach at UConn. I think a word or two about your predecessor, Larry Panciera might be in order today. Give us a Larry Panciera story. <laughs> oh, well, well, when I first came full time, I was part time in 1963. I was at East Catholic High School, and uh, I got a phone call from uh, J. O. Christian, who was the athletic director at that time, and he had connections with Michigan, and he, and he said, "I heard that you were in the area from my Michigan people, and you're a baseball guy." And we're looking for someone who could possibly help us out this spring and with the freshman baseball team. So I got permission from my principal at East Catholic High School, and I did such. So that was my first connection with Coach Panciera. And then in 1964, when I was offered a full-time position, a combination of football and baseball, uh, Rick Porzano was the head football coach. Uh, he went on to become the head coach of the Detroit Lions. Lou Holtz was the offensive backfield coach. He his, went on to be everything. And his son became the head coach at UConn, yes. 94 to 98. His son was born here in Willimantic, by Windham the way, Hospital. too. Hospital. Yeah. Yes. And Sam Ritigliano, defensive backs, who went on to be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And Dan Sikanovich, Buffalo Bills and Miami Dolphins. And Dave Adolph was with the Chargers and a couple other places. So that was some staff. But when I was brought in with the football and uh, I was told that the attrition rate with the freshmen was really bad. you got to do something to keep these kids here. Academically? Academically. So what I did was, first of all, I put together a 40-page book of study skills, one sheet on each one, like one thing would be on speed reading, I'd be note-taking, whatever, whatever. And I 
I started a study, study skills program, which went on for about 20 years, Sunday through Thursday night in the fall semester for freshman football and baseball players, 7.30 to 10 p.m. They arrived at Monteith Hall at 7.20. They were given a piece of paper, 10 words, part of speech and meaning, part of speech, and taken out of Reader's Digest. And then they would flip back and forth to increase their vocabulary. Then at 7.30 to about quarter to 8, a study tip a night. I'd give them something on maybe speed reading, note-taking, time management, whatever. And then for the rest of the time, you get your work done. And it came back to me over and over and over that that was a saving grace for a lot of people to get them going in the right direction to keep them in school. And so many of them. Coach, you saved my life. Uh, why? Because of that study skills program. So we did that, and then, uh, and of course, uh, when I stopped doing it, I was my nickname was the Bear. Then when I was coaching football, and my wife took over and uh, ran the program for with those kids, and they added more sports to her, and she did it. I don't know for about ten years, and she was known as Mama Bear. So we had that thing pretty well in order. And, but that 40-page playbook, it didn't have X's and O's in it. It had study skills, which carried them through. So it saved a lot of people. And, and it was, and I, I think I'm very gratifying, too, that hearing how these people say and that that was so important to them that got them going in the right direction. And I don't think a lot of people driving down Main Street think about this on a daily basis, but these days to keep the high-level athletes and all student-athletes at UConn eligible and in good academic standing they have a rather large extensive program called cpia the counseling program for intercollegiate athletics so that's one way they keep the kids eligible they didn't have that back then that's no. why what you just talked about what you and mama bear did was so important back in the day yes pretty much and uh th you know there was help available but it wasn't specifically for athletics but uh yes and i take great pride in that and, As uh, you should. Uh, that was huge. You and you and Mama Bear. You and Barbara. Yeah. yeah. And then the grad assistants I had had to take part in that too. Like and they went on. Chris Palmer, he helped that program. He ended up being the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And uh, Bobby Estock, he became the head coach at the Coast Guard Academy. Gary Blackney became the head coach at Bowling Green. Joe Pascal, Idaho State, and then the defensive coordinator for the Chargers. Uh, Tommy Bell, head coach at a couple of schools, including the Coast Guard Academy, where he was inducted into their Hall of Fame. And I take great pride in that. Those fellows were, you know, I had quite a few more, too, were my GAs, and they assisted in that program. You're talking about football in the 60s at, at UConn. You were there when UConn beat Yale for the first time in 1965. A guy who lived in what was my dorm at UConn Lancaster House, Gene Campbell, caught the big pick six that ended up being the decisive score in that game. And then in 1969, UConn beat Yale again. But I don't think people now think of UConn-Yale as a big deal in football. It was a huge deal in football back then, especially in the 60s, and especially the first time UConn beat Yale. In Carm Cozes, I think it was his first game ever coaching at UConn, and he got some letter from a guy that said, hey, there's a 5.30 train in New Haven, be on it, meaning don't come back. But just give a couple memories of UConn-Yale and those two UConn wins in 65 and 69. We were 0-17 against Yale going into that 65 game. And uh, again, uh, <laughs> and Rick Farzano, you know, we had 
we did some crazy things too to really psych our guys up. We were known as a dirty thirty then, because he he ran a very tough program, and a lot of people uh, didn't make it through. You know, in those days too, freshmen were not not eligible for the varsity, so you had your varsity group over there, and he was he was a taskmaster, which. A lot of people dropped out of the program, so we're known as the Dirty 30. We went into that ball game, and D Dave Whaley was our quarterback, and uh, Bo Billingsley was our running back. He was a captain, too, and Eugene Longtear. We called him Longtear because it was a motion that we used, Campbell. And that was momentous victory. I mean, first time, 0-17. But in those days, uh, Yale was a power. They had several people go on to the NFL. They played a lot of the national power, powerful teams around the country. So that was momentous. And then, of course, you know, we picked it up again, and then we became better and better and better. And, and well, you saw what we're up to right now. And lastly, let me change gears on another thing that I always think of you often when I'm watching a Major League Baseball game is your ability to develop umpires through the UConn baseball program. you got a couple of them they are still umpiring at the major league level right now. Well, what had happened was that we had a cost-cutting thing, and I had a JV program. You know, we had limited scholarship and so forth, and uh, and we had a cost-cutting thing too. And, and uh, so the JV program was very important to us because a lot of kids come in there not quite ready, but you give them a year or two. And you, you get something out of that. And we had several players do that. So uh, I, I was told, I said, if I could save and not spend any money, could we maintain it? So here's what I did. Number one, I went to umpiring uh, classes with a former major league umpire and learned what I could. I didn't, I knew, you know, I was a baseball coach, but I didn't know that rule book and, the, you know, the mechanics of umpiring. So I learned what I could over there. I got someone to donate some umpiring equipment, and some of my old friends gave me that. And uh, these kids, I, I, I started with some football players, Nick Giaquinto, Billy Maver, and then I had two real good ones, Dan Iasagna, who's now a crew chief in the, in the major leagues, and Jimmy Reynolds, who just retired. He was a crew chief. And both of those guys, eventually, they did the World Series. They did the All-Star Games. They were very well known. But anyway... I started that program, and uh, uh, we. So what I did was um, had they. I invited teams to come to us, uh, prep schools, two-year colleges. So we didn't travel, so there wasn't an expense there, and there was no expense for the umpires. And I helped out washing all the uniforms and so forth. So we we spent not much, but we had a program, and we maintained it, and it was awesome, and. Uh, uh, I remember Bill Maver, and I, I preached to these guys, the first pitch, anything close, call it a strike, set a tone. And we were playing UMass JVs. And the first pitch was like almost over the batter's head, and he called it a strike. I thought we were going to have a brawl out of the first one. <laughs> the UMass coach charged out of the dugout. And, and Bill Maver to this day, I, I, every time I see him, he's a successful high school coach up in Massachusetts. Coach, that first pitch, you almost got me in bad trouble. <laughs> But that umpiring program went on, and several of those, Brian Kernick, for example, he assigns all the umpires in the greater Hartford area right now. He was one of my trainees. So I had some pretty good people there, too. And, uh, but, but those two rose to it. When they really took it seriously, and they did summer ball after that, then they went to umpiring school. And I remember they were in a New York Penn League. I drove all the way up to Pittsfield, Mass., to Wakona Park, 
to watch them and you know in their debut and and then they just progressed from there and got better and better and better and and, and they ended up being crew chiefs. I got to tell you, Andy, that every time I'm watching a baseball game, whether it's a Red Sox or a Yankee game, or whether I'm watching the World Series, and I see your guys, I see Jim Reynolds, I see Dan Ison in there, I think of you. I know where they came from. I know they're <laughs> UConn guys, and I th- I'm proud of that. Uh, that's really tremendous. As you are, Andy, and I treasure our friendship, and I really appreciate you coming in today. I love your stories, and I want to hear more. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Wino, for the privilege and the opportunity.